0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works, or others in the publishing industry about their job, what it entails, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts From a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring the next six months of my podcast. If you need a real estate agent in Houston or in the surrounding areas, check out her link on my website. I have personally worked with Maggie for a house sale, and I highly recommend her. Today, I am interviewing Jamie Brenner about Blush, one of my July Buzz Reads picks. Jamie grew up in suburban Philadelphia on a steady diet of Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz novels. She studied literature at the George Washington University before moving to New York City to work at HarperCollins Publishers, then later barnesandnoble.com and and vogue.com, before returning to books and becoming an author. Jamie divides her time between Provincetown and Philadelphia. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures.
0: Welcome, Jamie. How are you today?
2: I am doing well. Thank you.
0: Good. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about Blush. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really fun read and made me think about some things in a different way than I had before, which to me is a sign of a very good book.
2: Thank you. That means a lot to me.
0: Well, why don't we start with you just giving a quick summary of Blush for those that won't have read it yet when they're listening.
2: Sure. So Blush is a story about three generations of women who convene at their family winery for the summer. And they're very different. We have a woman in our 70s, a woman in her 50s, a college young woman, and they're all at a, a turning point in their lives. They're all grappling with something. And over the course of the summer, they come together in an unlikely way, which is they rediscover the matriarch's former trashy novel book club where she read all the blockbusters of the 1980s. And these books give sort of the messaging and inspiration to these women to confront the problems that are are stymieing them that summer.
0: Well, how did you come up with the subject matter for this one?
2: It's a book I've always wanted to write because the novels I read in the 80s, like Scruples by Judith Krantz and Chances by Jackie Collins, had such a big impact on the way I viewed the world and what was possible. And even though I went on to be an English major in college and work in book publishing and was exposed to the greatest literature, these are the books that really stayed with me. And I wanted for some time to explore that in some way in a book and have the conversation with my readers. And this was the first story where I felt I could put all the pieces together and do that.
0: You know, it's such an interesting thing to think about, the concept of trashy novels or whatever else you want to call them. How do you feel about that designation for those books?
2: I think, you know, first of all, if someone tells me something is trashy, I'm like, sign me up. So personally, that is not a pejorative. For some people, it, yes, it is a turn-off. And I don't know why we feel the need to categorize women's books as women's fiction or beach reads or trash. You know, you know, it's something I don't think we do with men's work. But I think we're in a time where we can embrace that and sort of turn it into a positive. And I when I knew this book was gonna be something worth discussing is when I was at a very literary fundraiser for a magazine called One Story with some wonderful writers and editors and agents. And somehow the um, the hostess was Helen Ellis, the essayist and writer. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, I have a trashy novel book club. And it was just like a record scratch moment. And then everyone started talking about their favorite books from uh, the 80s. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a thing. It's like, A guilty secret pleasure. And this is worth kind of shining some light on. Well, I think
0: it's just so interesting because I agree with you in terms of trying to categorize books into these different groupings like summer reads, beach reads. And I've thought a lot about that this summer because, you know, I see the term beach read thrown around a lot. But I also think sometimes people are just saying, this is a great time to read this book, or that's a good category to use, summer read, beach read, because that's the season and the time we're in. So sometimes it's hard to know, like, is that a negative? Is that a positive? Is that just the same as like, here are some great fall books? I don't know. It's it's an interesting concept and one I think I will continue to think about for a while.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's negative at all. And yet sometimes I was at a book reading once and someone in the audience asked the author about her cover and she said, oh, but I just told the art department, I don't want a woman uh, on the beach on the cover. And I was thinking, why not? Like, I'd be the first one to pick that up. So, you know, there's lots of, of predisposed ideas about what a, a serious book should be.
0: I think that's what I was trying to say was it's not negative for me. And if yeah. I'm making a list of summer recommended reads, it's because it's summer. Yeah. To me, any book could go to the beach or the mountains or the pool, whatever. But it is interesting because I do think some people take it as a negative. And so I guess it's just a matter of maybe trying to change people's viewpoints on that and being like, summer is just like fall or winter or spring just happens to be the season that we're in. And if your book's coming out now, it's because people really enjoy those type of reads.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think summer is the, you know, vacation is the only time some people have in the whole year to relax and read a book. So whatever you choose for that precious time should be fun. Or if you want something serious and deep, go for it. That can be your beach read. So, I mean, I think we all want the same thing when we pick up a book, which is to escape and really get out of our own heads.
0: Right, be transported elsewhere. Yeah. So tell me about your research. Obviously, you probably reread some of these books that we're talking about. And what about the wine aspects as well?
2: Yeah, I did reread all the books, which was eye-opening to come at it from a 2019 perspective. <laughs> I bet. Uh, a little jarring. Yes, <laughs> and some things didn't age well. But the um, the wine research was a huge learning curve. Fortunately, there are some really great books out there, nonfiction books about wine. Uh, one of these is called The Vineyard by Louisa Thomas Hargrave, and she and her husband were pioneers on the North Fork of Long Island and started the first winery out there in 1971. And, you know, her, the detail and the literal, like, pulling up weeds and transforming a defunct potato farm into a gorgeous vineyard was was a real resource for me. And then there's a great wine critic named Letty Teague who wrote a book called Wine and Words, which was super helpful in kind of giving me a vocabulary to begin working with. And then the real fun part was visiting a vineyard on the North Fork called Bedell Cellars and walking in the field with the vineyard manager and taking a wine and cheese class with the winemaker, Rich Olson Harbich. So it was, um, one of the richest research experiences I've ever had.
0: I would think that would be really fun and fascinating. And now you have all this knowledge you can use in your everyday life.
2: <laughs> yes. On yes. wine. <laughs> I have an endless excuse to drink wine. What about
0: the format, deciding to do three generations of women and tackling you know, gender issues? I mean, to me, I just got mad over and over again about these poor women and the fact that nobody would listen to them and they had no say in anything. I was like, Urgh. but I know that that is the way it was for a while. H- how did all of that come about for you?
2: I, I do think you know, as I said, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and while my my father was very encouraging and told me you can do whatever you want, interestingly enough, the messaging I got from women was more like you have to behave and these are the rules. I wanted to show that we kind of create our own limitations. My protagonist, who's the middle generation, was told in no uncertain terms, this business is not for you, it's for your brother. And her mother, the matriarch Vivian, even though she had been right there with the father, breaking ground on this vineyard, went along with this. And then finally, we have the college-age young woman who would never be uh, dissuaded from doing what she wants, but she has her own preconceived notions about what is valuable and good, and that she would never deign to read a commercial novel or a trashy novel. You know, She has her head deeply in Susan Sontag and Julia Kristeva, which kind of becomes a, a prison of her own making. And I wanted to really break them all down over the course of this one intense summer.
0: Vivian did really make me so mad sometimes because I was like, why didn't she stand up for her daughter? I mean, I just thought she could have really made some inroads if she tried.
2: Yeah, I know. It's almost hard, you know, even now reading back to look at it and, you know, you want to shake her and say, why would you do this? But then I was watching the documentary that's just coming out now about Jackie Collins called Lady Boss, and it showed how she was treated the exact same way. By her father and how she was made to feel less than un- and not valued. And it, it reminded me that this, this is real and it seems unfathomable to us today. But, um, there was an attitude about what it means to support your husband and what it means to, to be a wife that really guided people to make some unfortunate decisions. But it's understandable in the context of the day.
0: I do think that's right. I think some women would have done exactly what Vivian did and others would have gone ahead and broken out of that and said I need to support my daughter. It is I within the social structure, but it still is just frustrating, you know, as I was reading I thought I wish she would just speak up for her daughter.
2: Absolutely. And there're plenty of women who did go against the grain. And I'm not even trying to judge women who don't or couldn't because I think we all do the best we can and certainly As a mother, you know, you try to find balance and make everyone in the family happy. And sometimes you're just in a a no-win situation. And I think that's what Vivian found herself in.
0: Well, and your story wouldn't be nearly as exciting if she was like, yes, go right ahead. (laughs) It would have been a very short book. Exactly. So you have to have the tension. So certainly there's no judging. It's more just, you know, trying to make sense of that kind of structure and how it existed. Well, what was the highlight of writing Blush?
2: I would say the highlight came very recently when I was able to get the book in the hands of Jackie Collins' daughter, who then messaged me how much she loved the story. And I just felt such a full circle moment that I had grown up on her mother's books and aspired to be a writer because of her mother's heroines and to be able to have a conversation with Jackie Collins' daughter about the book was incredibly fulfilling to me.
0: Oh, that is really cool. Was she just so excited that you'd taken on this topic?
2: So excited and so lovely. And she said, you know, it's amazing that the book is coming out this month when the documentary about her mother is coming out this month. And she said she just feels like her mother has this hand in keeping her her legacy going. And it kind of gave me the chills when she said that.
0: That is very cool. And I think there are things like this that there just has to be enough time to pass before people start looking back on something and then wanting to dissect it and talk about it and understand the impact on society. And I suppose 40 years is right about that amount of time.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's incredible to think it is 40 years, but uh, that is art really can't be judged in the moment and the fact that the books have lasted this long and have the the legs to be reevaluated by these different generations really to me says these are legitimate classics and i don't mean that like in a like air quotes type of way <laughs> i think they they are and they stand up and i think they'll continue to be discussed for more decades
0: well do you have a favorite of the books from that era
2: i do my favorite Book, I think one of my favorite books of all time of any era is Mistral's Daughter by Judith Kranz. It's multi-generational, which I love. It spans, you know, World War II and a Paris backdrop and the most vivid, indelible characters who have these passionate, sometimes tragic, fascinating lives. Um, I read it every few years and um, it never loses its power. So I don't write about that one as much in blush because I had to choose the novels that would like serve the story I was trying to tell. But that is really a standout book to me.
0: I don't think I've read any of
2: them. I obviously I believe it's worth a look. And I would just say, remember when you're reading them that they were written in a very different time because some things are not, you know, appropriate, like they would never make it into a book being published today. But I don't believe the authors meant any offense, like they were a product of their time. So you cannot read this with a 2021 lens, you have to let yourself be transported to a different era if you're going to enjoy it um, in in a deep way.
0: Don't you think the movies from that era are the same way or at least a fair number of them?
2: Oh my goodness. I was just saw a clip on um Instagram of a scene from Dynasty where the patriarch like takes his wife and like violently throws her on the bed and tells her to shut up or something. And I'm like, what am I seeing? <laughs> right. And I clearly had watched this back in the day and didn't bat an eye. So yeah, it's it's really in in our lifetime there's been a sea change in the way things are talked about depicted how men and women can can relate to each other on screen and it's it's really fascinating
0: it's a dramatic shift i watched 16 candles with my daughter when she was 16 and half the time i was like oh okay wait a minute like that's not okay now <laughs> you know like it's just so funny i loved that movie when i was young and you watch it now and there's a lot of stuff that i'm like oh yeah that does not hold up at
2: all very problematic yes. but um the truth is when, what it showed me is that as a young person, you know, I I didn't take any of those mess. I didn't see any of that as being malicious or abusive. And I don't know whether that is because we come into this world, you know, in just kind of a naive and optimistic way, or because the messaging at the time didn't teach us to interpret things correctly. But I kind of feel bad for my daughters, because there's a lot less innocent joy in the way they consume movies and TV and books. And, you know, while we've made so many great strides and important things have been done and accomplished, I I don't think I would trade my sensibility growing up for anything.
0: I agree. And I mean, they're in a just totally different situation altogether with social media and the iPhone constantly connected to them and everything. It's just a different time and things are, are very different. And I agree. I think you just can consume things through the lens of where you are. And I think that's the case when you look back on anything. And it's just, you know, it's I love that movie, 16 Candles, but then I watch it now and I'm like, oh, but I still love the general idea of it. There are just yeah. certain parts that you're like, well, that's not going to work today. Thankfully,
2: <laughs> right? I mean, look, it even goes back to what's that Bing Crosby song, "Baby, It's Cold Outside." Exactly, where he's like coercing her to stay overnight, <laughs> and it's like, oh my god! But it's a classic, you know. And I don't think anyone at the time was was thinking, you know, nefarious things, right? But of course, if you really want to drill down, but then you can't enjoy the song, so you know, it's tough. And right. um, sometimes I feel like art needs a little bit of latitude.
0: I agree completely. And that's what I really liked about your book, actually. There may be some things that don't translate forward 40 years, but the basic premises are very valuable and worth examining. Yes. What about the cover? I love to talk about titles and covers. And I think your cover is beautiful. And it's really different from your earlier covers. So how did it come about?
2: Thank you. I I do love this cover. I mean, insanely. Blush is a new publisher for me, Putnam. And it's just. You know, each art department has a different vision for how to interpret your story, and they just came up with this absolutely beautiful, lush, beautiful palette of color. It almost looks like um, a water painting, and I can't take any credit for it because I did not have any say really in the cover. But you know, Putnam's a fabulous publisher, and they, from from every editorial note to the cover on the book, they they have a very strong sense of how to give readers a a beautiful package. How has it been switching publishers? Oh, it's, you know, it's always, it's always interesting to get a fresh perspective on what you're trying to do. And as a writer, you, you want to keep giving your readers what they originally came to you to experience, but also grow a bit and, and add something and expand your storytelling. And so sometimes having new people around you kind of helps you do that because, um, it's hard to write a book every year and keep things fresh, not just for my readers, but to keep myself excited about the process.
0: Well, and every publishing house is so different. So, you know, starting someplace new, maybe just kind of gives you a different way of looking at things too.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, what about what you're working on now?
2: I just handed in my novel for next summer, which is another multi-generational family story in the spirit of blush, this time set uh, in a jewelry dynasty, kind of like Tiffany. It's a family that is synonymous with engagement rings and diamonds. And ironically, none of the women in the family have had successful relationships. They've had catastrophic love lives. And at the beginning of the book. A granddaughter who had been cast out returns to the fold to reclaim what's hers. So that will be with us next summer.
0: Oh, that sounds really good. Thank you. It was fun to write. It sounds like it would be a ton of fun to write and fun research.
2: Dangerous. Dangerously fun <laughs> yeah, research.
0: Exactly. You're like, I've got to stay out of these jewelry stores. Uh, well, what about what you have read lately that you loved and would recommend?
2: I just finished about a week ago uh, The Plot by Jean Homph Korelitz which I could not put down. And that doesn't happen that often, especially when I'm busy working. But it's a story of a writer who has a very risky approach to to fixing his writer's block. And it gives you this really delicious, like, inside baseball look at book publishing, at being a successful writer, at being a struggling writer, what it's like to be out on tour and what it's like to hear um, all the messages from people reading your book and the lengths people will go to 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 prop up their creativity. So I highly recommend that one. Did you
0: figure it out early on?
2: (laughs) I figured out one major thing, but I was still surprised by the way it ended.
0: I was curious because it's been interesting just to see how people respond to that one? Did you? I did, but it didn't so, take
2: away from the like from the enjoyment of the ride in any way for me. I don't ever like when I can figure something out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, anything else? Are there any others that you've really liked?
2: I'm actually rereading um, Jennifer Weiner's memoir called Hungry Heart. I, you know, I read her her new book that summer, and I did um, a conversation with her the night she launched the book. And it just reminded me what an interesting person she is and what a what a complicated life she's had. So for anyone who hasn't read her memoir and who enjoys her novels, I really recommend that.
0: I'm not even sure I knew she had a memoir, so that's good to know. i mean, I need to look that up.
2: It's truly fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Okay, good. Great.
0: Well, Jamie, thank you so much. I really love talking about Blush, and I'm so glad that you took the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Cindy.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode and I hope you'll tune in next time.